0: Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious for anything, about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, what is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 4. The rest God offers, the rest. God offers. Philippians chapter 4 is a familiar passage of scripture. It says, do not be anxious about anything. My experience has been for people who find themselves this morning anxious, nothing brings greater anxiety than reading about a passage of scripture that tells you not to be anxious. (laughs) To quote, quote one of my favorite characters in all of film. The dinosaur in Toy Story. Oh great, now I have guilt. I came in with just anxiety, now I'm leaving with anxiety and guilt. We're going to try and read this passage accurately, and by the Holy Spirit's power and the grace of Christ, we will find rest and not greater burden. God wants us to rest. From Genesis to Revelation, God wants us to rest. Genesis, God creates man and woman and says, hey, chill out, enjoy some food. In the wilderness watering, God tells his people to rest. Hey, just walk out your tent, get your food. One day a week, don't do anything. Just eat what's in the house. God wants us to rest. On the cross, Jesus calls us into rest by saying it's paid for, it's finished. With the resurrection, God calls us to rest. We don't have to figure out how to live forever. We rest in the fact that Christ is going to live forever. And you read the ending of the book of Revelation. The book ends in paradise with nothing but what? rest. I'm getting the idea, if I'm reading this book right, God wants us to rest. And what is the rest that God offers? How do we rest? In what ways do, do we rest? Now, rest comes in a lot of different flavors. It's Saturday afternoon. You might be looking for the rest that many of us are looking for. You're going to watch golf. It's also called taking a nap. I don't know if you know, they're the, essentially the same activity. Uh, unless you're a big golf fan like I am, then you can't fall asleep. But... Uh, You think about taking a nap. Some people rest by going on a cruise. Because on a cruise, somebody's going to make your food, somebody's going to clean your room, and you're going to sit by the pool. And you're going to do what? You're going to cruise. Somebody else is driving the ship. It's not your job. You might rest by going camping, getting out in the woods, breathing the fresh air. There's rest even in the work of organizing the trip. Uh, You might rest in hobbies you enjoy. You might go into the shop and do some woodworking. You may do crafts in a craft room. You may uh, take a walk. You may have a garden that you work in. And Rest doesn't mean a lack of activity. Rest is a lack of weight in life. So there's all kinds of ways we rest. And the question is, what is the rest that God offers? There's a lot of different rest God offers. and in our passage today we're going to look at uh, three main ones. Verses four and five, Philippians chapter four. The rest God offers. number one, rest from strife. Rest from strife. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness or your forbearance be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now back in Genesis chapter 45, there's a guy named Joseph, and he's basically running the country of Egypt, and there's a famine throughout the entire planet. The known world is under a famine. Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy grain, and Joseph sells them grain. You know the story. The reason Joseph lived in Egypt was because these same brothers sold him into slavery. And now over the course of several days and weeks and months, it comes to be known to them. This is Joseph, their brother, and they make up, and they have a big hug and a powwow, and they kiss each other on the cheek, all normal stuff, right? And he says, go back home, get pops, get all your stuff, come back here. You will never lack anything again for as long as you live. You will live in the best land. You will have the best things of Egypt. You will never run out of food. You will always have a home you will never run out. As of this moment, brothers, you're retired. Like there is nothing to do except for you to wake up in the morning and say, what's for lunch? And you say, why not breakfast? Because it's that late. <laughs> breakfast is, you slept your breakfast. And it's time for lunch. And he tells this, them this in Genesis 45, 24, as they're headed back to get their dad. He says this, do not argue on the way. Why would he tell them that? We think if we had everything we ever wanted, there would never be a reason again for us to argue. And Joseph knows the difference. We know the difference. God knows the difference. He's telling them there's nothing left to argue about. Everything's fixed. Don't argue on the way because there is nothing left to argue about. And God offers us rest from strife in what he tells us in this, power, this passage. The point is this. God is so powerful. God is so good. God is so gracious to you and to me that we are free then to be patient with the people around us. God has been so good to us with his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. We are then freed up to be patient and gracious to the people around us. We can trust God When we have been wronged and we have faced injustice, we can trust his goodness. Look how he starts the the passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He reminds us, God is so good, he is worthy of us saying, man, this is great. Let's throw a party. God is so good. In fact, he says it twice, which for uh, a writer like Paul means he's emphasizing the point. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why are we rejoicing in the Lord? Because he's God and he has made himself known to us by coming to us and dying on the cross. The first thing we need to pay attention to, it's hard in the English, but he is communicating this to a group of people. He's saying, you all rejoice. Church, rejoice. A body of believers gathered together, rejoice. And what he's trying to say is, the body of believers together should rejoice in the Lord together. In fact, Praising God and rejoicing in God's goodness should be a basic, primary mark of the body of believers. A a primary identifier of a group of believers is, they just like to tell God he's awesome. That's That's what he's calling us to do, is recognize God's goodness and his grace to such a degree that people, when they're walking by, say, what is wrong with, those people are quacky. They're always praising God. I don't see him because we've experienced his spirit and his grace to such a degree that we are marked by rejoicing in the Lord. A basic mark of the church is rejoicing in the Lord because God is that good. That leads us into forbearance. God isn't saying, be patient with others, otherwise I'll smack you upside the head. He's not saying that. In fact, he's saying the opposite. Because of the cross, I'm not going to smack you upside the head. So therefore, you can be patient with others because of my forbearance for you, God is saying, and the fact that we can rejoice in the fact that God does not punish us even though we deserve it, he's saying we can then extend patience and forbearance to the people around us. There's two kinds of people that you and I related to, people above us and people below us. Now, some of you are going to get all turned out of joint because I just said that. You you're say, well, 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 we're all equal. Yes. And then back to the real world. There are people in your minds that are above you, uh, your boss, uh, maybe your parents, uh, maybe uh, somebody in your community who is older than you, maybe somebody in your profession who is more successful than you, people that in your mind, for whatever reason, you say, they're a couple of notches up here. They have more power than me. They have more influence than me. They have more friends than me. They got more of everything than me. The other kind of people in our lives are people that, for whatever reason, we see them down here. They're junior level. Uh, they haven't measured up in our minds. Now, again, am I saying these things are right? No, I'm not. That's not the way it should be. However, this is the fact. Sometimes people who are more powerful than us, have more stuff than us, do things to us that are wrong. And what do we call that? Injustice. When somebody more powerful than us takes, us, takes from us things that aren't ours, That's not right. That's not just. That's not fair. And what's the normal response to injustice and unfairness? Anger. You get upset, especially when you have no ability to fix it. And you say, well, that's not right. And so now I'm going to walk circles in my living room. They stole something from me. It makes me mad. So I'm going to break something in my house. It makes no sense, right? So now I'm out something else. And I'm also, by the way, if you've been upset like this before, you will blame the other person for the stuff you broke broken your People who are laughing have done this. He <laughs> said, well, how does this help? We look at the cross, and we say this was in history the single most, single greatest moment of injustice that ever occurred. In all of human history, there has never been a single moment of greater injustice than the cross. So we look at the cross and we say, that was not fair. And then we remember, oh, I caused that. That's all me. If I were the only person alive and my sin was the only sin to be atoned for, it would still require the cross. So we look at the injustice and we say, I think I can have some patience for these yahoos who have done wrong to me. It doesn't mean I'm saying what they did is right. It doesn't mean I'm passive and let people walk over me. However, at the end of the day, I don't need things to be made right for things to be okay because Christ bears injustice for me, and I look forward to a day when all will be made new again. I can have forbearance and patience for those who have wronged me i can have forbearance and patience for those in relationship with me who have spoken about me wrongly i can have patience and forbearance for those who haven't met my expectations we can have rest from the stress of relationships in our life because we look to the cross and say it's paid for it's covered and the call here is to rejoice in the lord and the cross and the open tomb to such a degree that we can look at the relational brokenness in our life and you know you have a relational stress in your life if you're alive I can have rest from that because I have rest in the cross. I don't have to have it all fixed right now in this moment. I can have patience and I can have forbearance. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 22 says this about Jesus. Jesus By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is at rest because his mission is accomplished, and it says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. At the end of verse 23, Jesus, while being wronged, entrusted himself to the Father and said, I trust God you got this. And what Paul is calling us to do in Philippians chapter 4 by telling us to have forbearance is to do the same thing. When we are wronged, for us to have patience for those who have wronged us, not because we can get our pound of flesh, but because we trust that God will fix all wrongs one day. I can have rest, not when all my relational strife is fixed, I can have rest when I discover God really is in this with me. Jesus is at rest, and we are called to join him in that rest. Look back at Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your forbearance be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Two brothers are arguing in the living room. It's a vigorous argument at this point. It's only a verbal argument. Both are convinced the other is wrong. It involves reasonable tactics of logic and tit-for-tat and encouraging and challenging one another, things like you're stupid and you're a gunky, you know, something reasonable along these lines. And then we like to act as adults as though we no longer use these tactics of logic. We do. And then mom walks in. Now, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the argument changes, doesn't it? One brother says, oh, mother, I was just explaining to my younger sibling here how his way in encountering the world isn't as reasonable as mine. All of a sudden, everything changes, doesn't it? Because now there's one in the room. Oh, there's an authority figure has walked in. It completely redefines the viewpoint of this conversation. The viewpoint is no longer what's the conflict between you and me. The viewpoint is i got to keep things cool up here. How does verse 5 end? The Lord is at hand. That is both a comfort as well as a conviction. What he's saying is that mom's going to walk in the room one day, and we've got relational strife going on. On the one hand, we have been wronged, and some of us wronged significantly. And we can take great comfort. One day, Lord's going to walk in, and it's going to get handled. It is on. And our job at that point is just going to be this. Right? Okay, by God's grace, we're going to say, God forgive them too, but you understand what I'm saying. What what the Bible makes clear is every injustice will be undone. Every wrong we have experienced, when we move into eternity, we will say, okay, that was handled fairly. That was done right. On the other hand, some of us have wronged others. I'm sorry. All of us have wronged others. And the Lord's going to walk into the room, and we ought to, in this moment, before He's here, say, how would I approach this conversation, this relationship, this challenge, this conflict, differently knowing Christ is with me, knowing He's in the room. The rest God offers is rest from strife, both and, both. We know justice will occur one day. The wrongs we've encountered will be righted in Christ as well as we need to recognize patience and endurance with those around us will one day be rewarded. Our hope for patience, this sounds crazy, but listen, our hope for patience with others is heaven. There is no other way to be patient with others. And you say, well, boy, you seem really down on people. No, I just know them. The only way you and I can be patient with other sinners and how other sinners can be patient with us is if heaven is really coming. And that's the call here. Rejoice in the Lord always. He has poured out his grace on us. He has poured out his mercy on us. We can have rest from strife. We do not have to get justice in this moment. God will get it one day for us. We can also rest and offer forgiveness and grace and receive it. The rest God offers, rest from strife. But people aren't the only thing that bring us worry in our life. Uh, Real circumstances, stuff in life brings us worry. Look what it says in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The rest God offers from worry. The prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 went up to his father and he said, Father, I would like you to give me the inheritance that I will be given when you are dead. And so his father divides up his property and gives his son uh, his portion of his property. And his son leaves home and uh, you know the story. He squandered his property in reckless living. If you can think of something bad to do, he did it 10 times. And finally, he spent all of his money he Had Noma. Everybody who was friends with him during his partying days abandoned him. And in order to make a living, he hired himself out to feed pigs. And he was, the Bible says this, he was longing or he was hungry or he was yearning to be fed with the food the pigs were eating. I don't know if you've ever fed pigs. I've fed pigs on a, a time or two. I have never yearned for their food. I have never said, man, i got to get me some of that. Never. Of course, I've never been as hungry as this guy was. Right? This guy was hungry to the point of starvation. He saw what the pigs were eating, and he says, man, i got to get some of that. But he knows if he eats the pig's food, the owner is going to fire him or kill him or worse. No one gave him anything. So what he said, he said, you know what? My dad's got food galore. His servants eat better than I do. I'm going to go back and become a servant. But here's the point I want us to draw out of the prodigal son. He was longing for something, and the reason he had his longing was because he rejected his father. The cause of his longing was the result. The cause of his appetite was the result of casting aside his father. So we need to understand this clearly. When we are filled with the worries of life, when we are filled with the concerns, it's primarily a disconnection between us and God that needs to be restored by the grace of Christ. And it's not to say we don't have real appetites, and it's not to say we don't have real concerns, but at some point we have stepped away from that connection with God to such a degree that that longing is no longer fulfilled in relationship with God. That longing has become God. Worry is the product of disregarding or, what, or rejecting what God has given. Look at what, what it says in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Romans uh, 1, uh, a large part of it is a long description of the fallen condition of the human heart in sinfulness. And it gets at the root cause of our rebellion against God in verses 21 and 22. This is what it says. For although they, and by they, you can put your name in there. For although they, that is all sinners, and all sinners are anybody who's ever been alive. Although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or what? Give thanks. Isn't that weird? Where did that come from? I mean, this passage is a long description of stuff that is not safe for work kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden he says the problem is they didn't give God thanks. Let's look at it. They did not honor him. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, and they were claiming to be wise, but instead they became fools. So, what happens is we lose our gratitude for what God has done, we lose our gratitude for who God is and the power of Christ in our lives, and we say one of two things either God is absent or God is mean. In our lack of connection with God, all of a sudden, our appetite, whatever it might be, is not being satisfied. Whatever that appetite is, it's not being satisfied, and so therefore we assume God is either not present or God is mean. So therefore, I will turn to someone who will fulfill my appetite, and Romans 1 describes that as idols. God wouldn't provide what is needed, so therefore people would turn to worship idols that their idols might provide for their appetites. Now, many of us today don't have idols set up on our homes. Some might. But you say, well, I've never turned to idols. We have idols all the time. You say, well, what are my idols? They will be everything advertised during the Super Bowl. Those are all of them. All of the things we want. And how do we know we want them? Because the advertisers told us we want them. Of course we want them. They're perfectly good. And most of them, there's nothing wrong with them. However, we decided that this this lifestyle this trip this object can provide for me something god just simply refuses to provide he is either absent or he's not good so i will get it from this thing and it turns out mr appetizer i agree with you i should have that new truck how did you know i wish god got me the way you got me all right none of us think this way right of course we do this is how we breathe And it starts from a lack of gratefulness. God is either absent or he's a cheapskate. And I don't know which, or he might be a bit of both. Thankfulness, on the other hand, is saying, God is good, and I have a poor ability to know what's good. Worship says, I will submit myself to the plan of God and recognize that what he is up to is by its nature good, because God God is good. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has never not given something good. He has never withheld something good, and he's never given something that is bad. A lack of gratefulness moves our hearts to desire to fulfill our appetites somewhere else other than God, because God just doesn't seem to get me. Let's look a little bit deeper at how God looks at this. Matthew chapter 10, a couple of quotes from Jesus. I'm going to read about 40 minutes of scripture here this morning. Completely unapologetically. All right, Matthew chapter 10, 29. Christ says this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? True or not true? I have no idea how much sparrows go for but I'm going to take his word for it. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. How many birds have died that God has not been involved? Zero. How many birds die on a daily basis? I don't know. Do you have a a window in the back of your house, you probably have a couple of birds on your deck that have, I don't know, but not one bird in all of human history, all of world history, not one single bird has hit a clean window and died without God being involved. Not a one. Verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value then many sparrows. Okay, and some of you go, well, I don't know if that's comforting. Um, he's saying this. If God, he's arguing from the smaller to the greater, if God is deeply involved in the lifespan of a sparrow that you could buy for a penny, how involved do you think he is involved in every moment of your life? The argument is, he is involved in every single moment of your life. He is significantly concerned about your concerns. I would argue from scripture, he is more deeply concerned about your concerns than you are. To the point that when you comb your hair in the morning, he goes, it's going to be a rough day. We're going to lose 20. <laughs> Here we go. And some of you, that happened a long ago. And that's one part of job, God's job he no longer, no longer has to worry about. And said, so, well, God, he doesn't care, he's just just being sarcastic to make a point. No! He is intimately concerned with every detail of your life. So in our first uh, idolatrous lack of gratitude notion, we say, well, God is absent. Jesus says, absolutely not. God is more present in your concerns than you are, is Jesus' point. Matthew chapter 6. Look at what Jesus says there. Very familiar passage. This is one <clears throat> is a Matthew six twenty five through thirty four. It's a long section. Bear with me. I'm going to read the whole thing. Jesus says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor do they reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet the heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you? Yes. Verse 27. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? That's a logical question. Can we make our life longer by worrying about it? No, we don't have that ability. So consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. But they don't toil. They don't spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not clothed like one of the lilies. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is going to be thrown in the oven and burned, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, say, what should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? The Gentiles, they seek her after all these things, and, and your heavenly Father, he knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's got plenty of worries of its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Christ's argument is God provides what is needed and God provides what is good for us. And the call then is, in freedom of knowing God is going to provide all that is needed, we can then focus on worship, which is recognizing He is God, He is present, and He is good. We can have a, a mindset, a heart set on gratefulness. God, thank you for what you have provided thank you that you will provide enough for tomorrow we pray with gratitude not that just god can provide but that god will provide precisely what the best thing is whatever that might be and that's an act of worship so let's turn back to philippians chapter four since we are looking at that passage today anyway look what he says let your requests Be made known to God. What are some requests we might have? God, we're short on money. God, we need housing. Lord, we need clothes. Lord, I don't know how to parent my children. God, I don't know how to take care of my aging parents. God, I turned on the news and I ended up in the back room in the fetal position crying. Whatever it might be that gets you wound up, just go, God, I need you to handle this business. With a mindset of saying, God will provide the absolute best thing. Some of you are thinking because you're cynical, which is me. That's why I know you're thinking this, because I'm cynical. And those of us who are uh, cynics and um, pessimists, we don't think those are accurate. But How do we really think? We just know how the world really works, and our job is to bring all the optimists down down to earth a little bit. So if you're a cynic and a pessimist a little bit, You're saying, oh, yeah, I see how this works. God's going to provide the best thing. What are the odds that's the thing I actually want? Zero. So that's great. God's going to provide me the best thing. God and I disagree what is the best thing. So this is where worship happens. This is where worship happens. Pay attention because some of us want worship to be, we move into a room like this, we sing a song that we heard on the radio, and it gets us all fired up. That's worship. It's awesome. Here's another way we worship. God, I want this, you're providing that, that's lame, not my will, but yours be done. That, see, that's worship. He said, where would I hear that? I think I heard Jesus say that once. Here's what I want. Here's what God wants. Uh, I think that's lame. If I would have wanted that, I wouldn't need God to get that. I got, those, I got that in spades because God gave it. And then I say, as an act of worship, okay, wait a minute. The problem here is not God. The problem is my heart. I want all the stuff God doesn't want to give, and God wants to give us the stuff I should want. Worship is saying, not my will, but yours be done. God, conform me to what you are doing. Please, by your grace, God, do not conform yourself to what I want. Thank the Lord the prodigal son's dad didn't come and spruce up his pig pen. He said, come home. Change what you long for. And that's what we're being called to do here. Anxiety is because we want God to give what I want. Peace comes when we say, I want what God is giving. And that requires worship, which is an intentional, conscious submission to what God is up to. Peace is a product of gratefulness. Gratefulness is a result of us trusting That what God is doing is good, and I don't need anything other than what God is doing. And when I have appetites that are not satisfied because God is not providing for them, the issue is not that I need to figure out another way to satisfy my appetites. The question is, when will I give my appetites over to God and say, God, you give what I should have? Another way to pray that is, God, change my longings by your spirit. The rest God offers is a rest from worry and the promise is the peace of God will surpass understanding when God by his spirit moves us to such a degree that our longings line up with his purposes in Christ Jesus. The rest God offers from worry, the rest God offers from strife and finally the verse final few verses the rest God offers from futility. Let me read These last two verses, verses 8 and 9. Excuse me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and, again, the God of peace will be with you. The rest God offers is rest from futility. Thoreau has a famous quote, "Uh, most men or people live lives of quiet desperation. And uh, we might suggest that is uh, perhaps true, if not maybe a little dramatic. You know, most of us aren't at home living lives of quiet desperation, but there are certain elements of each of our lives where we say, I don't understand what's going on here. And I don't have the answers for some of the things I am facing. And one of the primary things for most individuals is this, at the end of the day we want to matter. We want to leave a mark of significance if, if not widely in the culture, at least in our homes, at least with our children, at least with our friends and family and neighborhoods. we want to we matter when, when we have a funeral, we want more people uh, to show up than you know a handful. But did we matter? Because we always do we matter? and, and this is the point that uh, the author of the scripture here is making by the Holy Spirit he says, We matter because God is with us and we have to intentionally, as an act of worship, settle our hearts and minds on him to find our significance. So what we need to understand about rest that God offers, both from strife and from worry and from futility, is this. It's primarily a transformation of the inner person that needs to occur. So I've got uh, four more verses to look at. We're just going to spend 15 or 20 minutes in each. I'm kidding. I'm just making sure you're still awake. But we do have several to look at. Uh, we'll try and go uh, relatively quickly. So let's start with Luke's Luke 6, 45. Here's what Jesus says about the human condition. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever said something? And said, Well, I don't know where that came from. Yeah, we do. <laughs> it came from your heart. Well, that, that wasn't being me. No, actually, you were really being you. This little unfiltered moment. And Jesus said, This is a fundamental element of how the human condition operates. What we do is not what influences our heart. Our heart is showing up in what we do and what we say. And a law of the human condition is our problem is not outside us. The problem is inside us. Many Christians today are worried that the world is going to ruin them. The Bible is not worried the world is going to ruin you. The Bible is worried that you're ruined. And the only fix is the grace of Christ who can transform the inner person. Nobody died and separated from God forever because the world ruined them. All people who were separated from God forever is because their inner person is fundamentally ruined. And that's the point here. He's saying our problem is in us, not outside of us. And, and to understand significance in Christ, we have to have the inner person changed. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. Jesus and his disciples were being accused of not being very religious because they didn't wash their hands before they eat. Uh, Let's be clear here. You still wash your hands before you eat, right? They were talking about a religious thing. You wash your hands before you eat, otherwise God won't like you very much. You should still wash your hands before you eat, especially with the flu going around, okay? Especially when we're having a church dinner. Let's be reasonable. Jesus says this when they were being accused of defiling their person, their inner conscience, by eating with unwashed hands. He called the people to him. He said this, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he said, oh, I didn't realize. I'm sorry. No, he didn't say that. Um, He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both are going to fall into a pit. Uh, Peter said to him, explain this to us. Not surprising Peter would say that. He didn't understand much for most of the time. Jesus says, are you still not getting it? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? Yeah, Jesus really said that. He's saying what you eat is not the problem. That's just how life works. You eat stuff, get a little energy, work it out, and then later on, you got to do what you got to do. Verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? What comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this heart, this defiles the person, for out of the heart comes what? Listen what comes out of your heart. Verse 19, it's got a list. Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, that's Monday. What's on Tuesday? These are what defile a person. What you eat doesn't matter. Here's the point. He's saying the fix is not you need cleaner hands. The fix is not you need better religion. The fix is not you need to be more uh, well behaved. The fix, you need a new heart. You need a heart that isn't adulterous and murderous and full of envy and slander and gossip. You need a new heart. You need your inner person changed. I want the peace of God, but I want the peace of God with my old heart. And Jesus says, not going to happen. You need a new heart that desires the things of God, and then you will experience what? Peace that surpasses all understanding. But as long as we want God to be conformed to our old heart, we are never going to have peace. We are just merely going to have more and more and more worry what kind of mind should we have philippians 2 verse 5 how many more verses just two more here's what it says philippians 2 5 we preached on it so we'll just spend a little time already have this mind among yourselves which is in christ jesus what kind of mind should we have the mind of christ that's all we need our heart transformed to be like jesus we need the mind of Christ. Here's what it says in Galatians 3:26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through what? Faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We need a new mind. We need the mind of Christ and what the Bible tells us, when we put our faith in Christ for forgiveness, we put on Christ. We wear Christ like a robe. We wear his righteousness and we wear his mind. His heart becomes our heart. His mind becomes our mind. The question will be, as his followers, as those who have been remade, will we worship him by pursuing our life according to his mind or will we in our flesh live our ways? Because between now and eternity, that's going to be the question for us day in. And day out. Am I going to live who I am in Christ today, or today am I going to go back to the old ways? Living with my mind in Christ, setting my heart and mind on things that are good and pure and lovely, is a recipe for the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Setting my heart and mind on my appetites, my old things, is a recipe for anxiety and worry and strife and futility. It is hard to be convinced of that, isn't it? We are convinced we would be okay if we finally had everything we wanted. We're convinced of it. And the Bible says that's absolutely true when you desire everything Christ desires. You will finally have everything you've ever wanted and have the peace of God which transcends understanding Because God gives everything that is good in Christ. And God will never give us anything that is not good. The problem is our appetites. We have a new mind. We see things in a new way. And we can discern in this world what is good and worship God and leave the rest. The rest God offers is rest from strife. Because the strife that has been fixed between us and God was fixed by Christ, so therefore we have the power in Christ to have rest with one another, to offer forgiveness and grace to each other, and to receive forgiveness and grace from one another. We have the joy of resting from worry, because we can understand that God values us beyond anything else He has ever created. He is more concerned about our concerns than you and I are, and we can live lives of gratefulness and worship, conforming our appetites to Him, And we have rest from futility because in Christ we look forward to a day when we will be glorified in Christ. We matter because we're in Christ and Christ is the son of the living God. A couple of questions to think about before we close. Uh, One or two of us, probably just a handful of us, have some relationships in our lives which are a little bit stressful. Uh, Probably not here. Probably it's the people putting the food together, right? It's not us. Um, So just a a way of thinking about it that's framed by Philippians chapter 2, because at the end of that verse uh, 5, remember what it says. The Lord is at hand. So think about it this way. If God is showing up tomorrow, and he could. He might not. I don't know. He hasn't asked. He hasn't asked me anyway. If God's coming tomorrow... And I, and I knew that. How would that redefine how I'm engaging with that relationship and the, and the challenge I'm facing? How would, would I be holding on to that grudge as, as deeply as I am? Would I be uh, judging that person as harshly as I am if Christ were coming back tomorrow? And what, what the scripture is calling us to do is shorten the time frame in our hearts and minds on when Christ is returning and judge how we're operating in relationship knowing Christ is returning soon. Maybe another way to think about this, is my relationship with another defined by the grace of Christ or not? Am I willing to receive grace or am I willing to extend grace? I know that's very, very hard in many, many circumstances. However, maybe you could ask yourself this question. Has your worry about that relationship been fixed by holding on to the grudge? My experience in my own life is that generally doesn't make the worry go away. What makes it go away finally is when I say, Jesus, you can have it. I'll trust that at the end of time, you will bring all things to right. I'm going to operate in the, in, in the world of grace. Okay, next question. This one's going to really annoy you, but I feel like that's my job. <clears throat> What is your obstacle to thankfulness in your relationship with God? I offer two suggestions, and I want you to pick one. In the absence of gratefulness and thankfulness to God, which is true for all of us, is my view God is absent, or is my view God is a cheapskate? And you may have a mix of those. But, and you say, well, why in the world would you make me think about that? Because I what I want you to do is challenge the way your mind is working with the truth. What is true of God? Is God absent? No. No, he's not. The Bible is abundantly clear. God is near. Is God a cheapskate? I look at the cross. I'm going, no, I don't think so. If he's willing to give his own son, I'm pretty sure this guy's generous. So I need to challenge my thinking with what's true. And some of us are millennials, and some of us are Gen Xers, and some of us are just Americans. And we say, you know, that's not my truth. Um, you know, I don't know that I care. Um, no, I'm, I'm, that's terrible. We have to challenge ourselves with what is true. We have to challenge our thinking. We have to recognize that because our hearts are polluted, we don't tell ourselves the truth. And we have to be willing to let the Word of God tell us the truth and tell ourselves the truth. God is near, God is generous. And you say, well, I don't feel those things. I'm not asking if you feel those things. I'm asking what is true. And we need to be willing to proclaim the truth to our own heart. And say, that's a lie. God is near. God is generous. So I can have gratitude. And somebody said, well, you don't know what my life is like. You're right. I don't. But I know God has called us in any and all circumstances to worship him in gratitude. Okay, finally, Christ is coming. Amen? Amen. He hasn't come yet, uh, but he is coming. Uh, Like we've said before, it's like going on vacation and a road trip. We're as close as we've ever been. I don't know when we're going to get there, but Christ is coming. But he is also here now. And what I would challenge us to think is, are we holding on to that hope? Primarily, I need you to challenge your own heart. Are you in Christ? Have you been forgiven? It's a matter of faith. Do you trust that you needed the cross And the cross was for you. When Christ returns, there will be no more opportunity to put your hope in him. ship will sail. The time to do that is now. The only way to avoid futility, the only way to avoid strife, the only way to avoid anxiety is to be found in Christ. And those things are addressed. Will you find that hope in faith?